Well, praise the Lord for that. I got to be in the front row and hear the choir out here singing. That was amazing. Well, turn to the book of Joel. Um, the book of Joel, just a reminder for those of you that weren't here last week, we are starting this series on Christ and the Minor Prophets. And the Minor Prophets are the, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And they're not called the Minor Prophets because they're the Minor Leagues. Uh, kind of, you know, you got the major prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's not like they were the first string and Joel and Amos and Obadiah are the second string. The, the reason they're called the Minor Prophets is because the content is short. In fact, all of the 12 books could be fit onto one scroll. Uh, back in the day, they didn't put it in books. They put them on a scroll, and, and the 12 minor prophets fit on one scroll. In fact, they were called the Book of the Twelve. And we are in the book of Joel, and these first six prophets in the minor prophets, the first six books, you see that they're arranged um, with a strong emphasis on warning. God's glory will be seen when He brings salvation through judgment. And so these first six books, I, I was just having a conversation right before church about this uh, issue of they're not chronological, so that can be very confusing when we read it if, if you get that far in your read through the Bible in a year, if you don't get beat up by the book of Leviticus and all of the uh, uh, you know, uh, begats and... Um, that so the first six books uh hosea joel amos obadiah jonah micah are primarily about judgment but not only about judgment it is also about salvation in fact what we see throughout the minor prophets is that yahweh alone are the people's savior we saw this in the book of hosea he pictures it like Hosea and his wife's marriage that though Israel had been chasing after other idols like an unfaithful wife Yahweh is the faithful husband who goes and buys her out of bondage and slavery and what a picture of the gospel what we've already been singing and what we heard in the book of Acts that Jesus died for us and through his blood purchased us off of the slave block of sin um, not only that, we see that when Yahweh saves, His salvation will result in His glory filling the earth. We'll see this today when we talk about the day of the Lord. And in Joel 2.27, he says that you shall know I am in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. What we see is throughout the Minor Prophets that when Yahweh saves and redeems, His people know Him. Not just know about Him. Not just know facts that He's the one who made the heavens and the earth, but have relationship with Him. Know Him. Have fellowship and communion with Him. And that in that knowledge, they will respond by worshiping Him, rejoicing in Him, and singing His praises. And we're going to see this throughout the series as we go well the book of joel he's been called in the commentaries the prophet of pentecost we heard it in acts where joel is quoted about in these last days the spirit's going to be poured out on all flesh um, he's called the prophet of hopefulness so even in the midst of judgment there's this great hope that the day of the lord is coming and he's been called the prophet of the spirit 
promising this future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this man, Joel, he was privileged to see both, as it were, in prophetic outlook, the beginning of the new covenant and the end of the age and the eternal state and all things to come where God is going to make all things new. And so we're really going to be talking about um, everything from the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost to Jesus' second coming and making all things new. The rest of human history, this little book of Joel covers it all. And the, the context of the book of Joel, as we begin to read it here uh, briefly, there was a devastating locust plague that hit the nation of Israel, in particular the southern kingdom of Judah. Joel is prophesying to that southern the, the southern kingdom, Judah, and it's also accompanied by a severe drought. And commentators believe that it's in that context that Joel begins prophesying, calling them to repentance so that the locust plague and the drought would be lifted, and then warning them of a greater judgment to come called the day of the Lord. You might have heard of this day of the Lord. It's spoken of in many prophets. It's spoken of in the New Testament it was a fulfillment that the day of the Lord is coming that's bringing judgment, but also with it salvation. And this locust plague, Joel tells the people, is a type of that day of the Lord to come. Now, we don't know when Joel was written uh, in terms of what century it was written, but we do know that it's quoted in the Old Testament by a number of books. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum. Zephaniah and Malachi and then it's quoted in the New Testament by the book of Acts Peter's sermon that we just heard read and I want you to turn just if I could just give you one set of verses to to latch on to in the book of Joel uh, will be Joel 2 12 and 13 I want to read this as a summary just to give you the the main point Verse 12 of chapter 2, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. So this is the heart of the prophecy of Joel, the book. Repent, rend your hearts. In fact, I titled it, Rend Your Hearts. And that picture of rend your hearts, not your garments, we don't typically tear our garments when we have sorrow anymore, but it was very common for them to, as an example of their sorrow, maybe at a funeral or maybe over their own sin, to tear their garments in half. Like Hulk Hogan back in the day when he would just rip the shirt off. Now, we don't do that, but, but there's this this insinuation by Joel that that tearing of the garments had become a public display that didn't reflect the heart. And here Joel says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't just have an outward display of sorrow for sin. Actually demonstrate repentance and sorrow for sin in your hearts. Why, Joel? Why would you say this? Well, because when you do that and you return to the Lord your God, what you find is that He's gracious and He's merciful and He's slow to anger 
And he's abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. In other words, when you repent, this is the character of our God is that he forgives you. And he brings you to himself. And he gives you what you don't deserve. He gives you grace. And he's compassionate. And he's slow to anger. He's not like those that even though you're sorry, they just cancel you and it's done and over with. And he's abounding in steadfast covenant-keeping love. And he relents over disaster. This is, this is the heart of God. And I know I've said this before, but the, the, many times our perception of the Old Testament is that God is just a God of holiness and righteousness and anger and all He wants to do is just nuke anybody off the planet. He's just looking for an excuse. And it took the God of the New Testament, Jesus, to sort of talk Him off the ledge and say, hey, hey there, slow down, forgive these people, I died for them. No, this is the heart of God is to be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and to relent concerning disaster. And Joel here is quoting uh, God Himself in the book of Exodus. Of course, we know in the book of Exodus when He reveals this, He will by no means clear the guilty. And so Joel, we're going to see, is full of judgment for those who are guilty. The holiness of God demands judgment. But what? listen to the heart of God. This is what I want you to hear. So the first part of the book, it it breaks out into two parts. Joel speaks God's judgment upon the people from 1.1 to 2.17. And then the second part is going to be God's salvation from chapter 2, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 21. So first, God's judgment and Joel speaking. So let's read beginning here in chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land, Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake you drunkards and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down, and their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because of the harvest of the field is perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there's 
No pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field, even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. What a picture. This devastation that's that's present, and it starts with a a locust plague. It's why there's this description of these four types of locust and and the commentators believe that the best view is that Joel began to prophesy in the midst of a plague of locusts. And the, the plague was so severe, um, you have these four descriptions of locusts. And there's some debate, if you go read the commentaries, whether it's four waves of locust, or if it's four species of locust, or four stages of a locust development from the the larvae to the pupae to the fully grown whatever and um, we don't know bottom line but it's four different types of plague that come one after another after another after another and I'll read you a description of what a locust plague is like during a single day a locust swarm can travel 60 miles and during the course of a migration a swarm may move up to six hundred miles in 1959 a locust plague in ethiopia lasted six weeks and a conservative estimate is that the locust consumed enough food to feed one million people for a year i've never experienced anything like that we don't have do we even have locusts here we do grasshoppers i've seen grasshoppers but locusts i'm not sure but imagine that just a big giant wave of bugs They just come in and eat everything. And this is what they're in the midst of. And Joel here says in verse 2, hear and listen. And he uses it as an opportunity to call Israel to repentance. And four groups are talked about in chapter 1. Drunkards, city dwellers, farmers, and priests. And he basically says to them, whether you're a drunkard and you're relying upon wine to make you happy, all the wine's gone because the vineyards are eaten by the locust. The city dwellers in verses 8 to 10, the grain and, and drinks are cut off because the fields are destroyed in verse 10. The uh, farmers, all of their livelihood is gone. The barley, the grain, the vine, the fig tree. The priests who are supposed to minister at the altar with all of these things, their response should be repentance. And chapter 1 is just this picture of devastation locust plague then accompanied by famine and probably the locusts eating all the food produce the famine now chapter two the devastation that was there joel says to the people there's a worse sort of locust plague as it were coming a worse judgment coming called the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming and it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. 
The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, and with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle before them. Peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. And the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, and who can endure it? So this severity, he describes this army that's going to come, Babylonian army that's going to conquer Judah because of their disobedience. And he describes them like a swarm of locusts, but he says, unlike the swarm that's all scattered, they're in lines, and they just run through everything and they get everywhere. And Joel's prophecy is like an alarm, like a call of a horn. And when it blows, it's like, pay attention, wake up. Now, I, when I was working at the oil refineries in the Bay Area, there, it would be a big deal if an alarm went off, especially the big refinery alarm. When you hear that big refinery alarm in town, it's a big deal when it goes off. And uh, it, isn't, it isn't turned on for no reason unless they're testing it and they let everybody know that it's whatever it is at noon on the second Thursday of the month or whatever it is. But when that alarm goes off, it means go cross and upwind and make sure you're not in some sort of crazy cloud. Watch, you know, there's no troubles. When I worked at Dow Chemical out in Pittsburgh when I was really young, I was super confused because there were alarms going off left and right in every single place, in every single unit, and it was always a different alarm. And here I am worried that you know, you take the, 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 you get initiated into that place and they tell you, oh yeah, there's a chemical that if it gets on you, it eats your bones and kills you. And you think, I don't want to be out here. That's kind of crazy. You guys all know, I know a bunch of you have worked in all these places, but pretty soon when you're out there working, you hear all these alarms go off and you ignore them all because you're just like, oh, it's another day. I don't know. Not my unit, not my problem. Oh, probably the, um, you know, the, the alarm got tripped and the operator hasn't turned it off and, oh, it probably just means something else. It's probably not an emergency. So pretty soon you begin to wonder, would I even respond to a real alarm? Because you've been conditioned to just ignore the alarms. Well, this is what Joel is saying to his people is, you've been conditioned to ignore the alarms. Judgment's coming because you've disobeyed God and you're turning away from Him and you're not pursuing Him and judgment's coming and you've been conditioned to just say, it'll never happen. And Joel is saying, wake up. There's a day coming. You thought this locust plague was unusual. So much so, you're going to tell your children and grandchildren and their children, wait till the day of the Lord comes. It's going to be unique. Verse 3 Like the garden was undone by sin, the day of the Lord is going to be that dramatic. And what's amazing to me in chapter 2 is that the head of this army is Yahweh Himself, the one who would protect Jerusalem 
is now attacking the city. The one who is coming on this day of the Lord, it says Yahweh is leading it. Verse 11, the Lord utters His voice before the army. So God is bringing judgment through this army that's coming upon His own people because of their sin. And so then He turns what I read to you earlier. He gives them this call to repentance in verses 12 to 17. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to Me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his rooms in the brighter chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is your God? So this day of the Lord is referred to four times in the book of Joel, beginning here in chapter 2, verse 1. We saw it in verse 11. We're going to see it later in verse 31. And then in chapter 3, verse 14. And this day of the Lord is spoken of by a number of prophets. In fact, when I said, are you familiar with it? I saw a lot of you nod your head yes. And we can think of the day as having two parts. A day and a night. A nighttime phase or the the wrath or judgment phase. And a daytime phase, the, the blessing phase. And many of the Old Testament scriptures dealing with the day of the Lord have a reference only to the wrath portion when we get to the book of Amos. If you were to read Isaiah 13 or Jeremiah 46, Ezekiel 30, when we get to Zephaniah, we'll see this. But then many talk about a blessing that follows this day of the Lord, like we're going to see here in Joel. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 speaks of the day of the Lord. And I'll read it to you. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'm just going to read it. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 12, uh, start in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, because in verse 10 the day of the Lord will come like a thief, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. So Peter tells us that when this day of the Lord comes, yes, it's going to be judgment, but it's for the purpose ultimately of bringing blessing to His people and righteousness is dwelling and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And this is... What we long for, isn't it? Jesus said, take communion as often as you do it until I come again. We're, and as often as we do it, we are remembering the Lord Jesus until He comes to make all things right. A new heavens and a new earth. And so back to Joel. Chapter 2, verse 18. This is where we begin to see the second half of this where God is speaking. And He's speaking about His salvation and the restoration of blessing and this blessing side of the day of the Lord. 
Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he's done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He's given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people will never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel. That I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So you have this promise of restoration, this promise that God is going to bring blessing and be in the midst of His people again, and and that there's going to be this great evidence of it when the Spirit is poured out. But I want you to look at verse 23 in passing. Uh, It's an interesting verse to me because in the Hebrew, you either have the early rains translated early rains of vindication in verse 23 or it could be translated teacher of righteousness be glad O children of zion rejoice in the lord your god for he's given you the early rain for your vindication he's poured down on you the abundant rain the early and latter rain is before and some commentators and i know that's super different in english how you get early rain or teacher of righteousness but the words in the hebrew are really close And some commentators have brought up the fact that if it is a teacher of righteousness, or if there's an ambiguity on purpose, why would Joel do this? And we don't have time to dig into all the details, but if he did it on purpose, if the Lord is revealing this and the Hebrew could be either one, it's because it's an allusion to the book of Deuteronomy, where Yahweh said he was going to vindicate his people in the presence of the nations by sending rain to heal their land. And that this wordplay would be that the salvation of the nation would come from a teacher of righteousness. This one who's to come, this uh, prophet like Moses. For example, Deuteronomy 28 says that a locust plague was a sign of greater judgment to come. In particular, military defeat and exile. Deuteronomy 28, verses 38 to 68. Then Deuteronomy promises in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like Moses would come in the future. And in that context, 
Chapter 34, we know the prophet did not yet come to that point. And so if Joel is hinting here of a prophet like Moses, a teacher of righteousness, it's still yet future when all of this is going to happen. Not only that, Moses had said in the context of the conversation that he wished all the people had the Spirit of God. Um, What had happened was Moses was the leader of the people and there was rumor in the camp that other people were speaking and teaching and prophesying by the Spirit in the camp and Moses' family members, Miriam and Aaron, said, hey Moses, you need to go shut them down. That's a threat on your leadership. And Moses responds and says, I wish all the people had the Spirit. And so if Joel is referring to the book of Deuteronomy, which I I think he is referring to, it's no surprise that right after this mention of the early reigns of vindication, this teacher of righteousness who comes, that the Spirit would be poured out in the latter days. This is basically what Joel is saying is the same thing Moses was saying in the book of Deuteronomy is that when the Spirit is poured out in the last days, it will be preceded by the prophet like Moses who's coming, who's the Messiah, who's the promised one, the Christ. And when He comes, He's going to be the one who sends the Spirit. And that's what we heard in the book of Acts when it was read by when Peter in his sermon. He said, oh, by the way, this Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified... God has made both Christ and Lord. He raised Him from the dead. And Jesus is the one who poured out the Spirit that you're now seeing and witnessing, which was fulfilled the prophecy of the prophet Joel. This verse right here I just read, 28 and 29. And so this was intended to happen from all the way back in Moses' day. By the way, Numbers 11 is where you see Moses desiring that um, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And so God is promising a day in the future to His people from the perspective of Joel that this rain is coming, as it were, these early rains of vindication in this latter rain, and that if it is a teacher of righteousness, and I think it is a reference to the Messiah, that when He comes, verses 28 and 29 of Joel 2, the Spirit of God's going to be poured out on all flesh. And Peter says on the day of Pentecost, what you're seeing is what God promised through Moses and through Joel. And it's now happening. And all God's people, men and women, all of them have the Spirit of God in the new covenant. It's what we have. And so remember, I asked the question last week, how much did the people of Israel know about the coming Messiah? Well, they knew a lot of things about what was going to happen when Messiah came. And what we see here in Joel is when Messiah comes, in those latter days, He's going to restore all things and He's going to pour His Spirit out on all flesh. And Peter says, this is it. Incredible. Promise fulfilled. God keeps His promises. Why is it so important for us to know? Well, it's so important for us to know because we are clinging to the promises of God, aren't we? We still live in a fallen world. We sang it earlier that He will hold us fast. Though I fear my faith may fail, He will hold me fast. Well, why would He do it? Because He promised to. And He keeps His promises. And so when we see God keeping His promises from the Old Testament to the New Testament, hallelujah! 
And not only that, this promise of the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh, this is our great hope. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and so we can, we're in the process of being made fit for heaven. Being made fit for this new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. We've already been called holy and righteous and saints. And the Spirit of God is transforming us into this righteousness and holiness through the Word as we behold the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.16 Well, back to Joel. Verse uh, 30 down to uh, chapter 3, verse 15. I will show wonders in heaven and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations, and they've divided up my land, and they've cast lots for my people, and traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you've taken my silver and my gold and carried my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you've sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. And I will send your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men who draw, of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down the warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. So you have this salvation brought through judgment. There's going to be those who experience the wrath of God, but also those saved and gathered into a body. Um, Peter quotes this in Acts 2.39 and says, this, is, this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to Himself. And what we see uh, in the big picture, I don't have time to get into all the details, is the removal of enemies. Verse 12 of chapter 3 is a judicial scene. The nations gathered before Yahweh. Matthew pictures this as a sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. And two verdicts. Those who are sheep go into eternal life, and those who are goats go into eternal punishment. Verse 13, there's a harvest scene which Isaiah picks up in the book of Revelation in Revelation 14. And there's two fates. There's the wheat and the chaff. The harvest of grain is the righteous, the first fruits from the earlier 
from earlier in the chapter. The harvesting of the crop for eternal life as Jesus speaks of in Matthew 9 and Luke 10 and John 4. And then you have the harvesting of the grapes. The wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of God. Uh, You've heard that phrase, the grapes of wrath, because there's a famous book um, in English. But it came out of this picture in Joel and Isaiah and the book of Revelation. That the, the harvesting of the grapes is to be put in the winepress and God is going to tread the winepress in His anger. Isaiah 63 is graphic um, in that picture. And here Joel mentions it. And then you have verse 14, a crowd scene, multitudes. This gathering of the multitudes. And even the book of Revelation picks up on this and has uh, two banquets, as it were. The banquet with the saints, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then the banquet there at the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and it's calling all of the birds of the air to feast on those who are crushed. Graphic. This picture of God's judgment. And it's interesting how you have here Not a single person is exempt. All of the earth is called. All of the peoples of the world are called. Even the sun and moon are darkened, picturing this judgment day that's coming. It's a cosmic scene, verse 15. In fact, Peter, I read it to you earlier, Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. But according to His promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so this judgment's coming, but God is promising salvation for His people in the midst of it. Look at the last few verses. Verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion. Glorification here at the end. He utters His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they've shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. And so a reversal of the plague and the famine at the beginning. Now Judah has this abundance. The wine and the the milk flow and the land is is blessed. And instead, Egypt is a desolation. Edom is a wilderness. They're experiencing the judgment of God. And Joel paints this picture of a new Jerusalem. And the elements of it is the eternal safety, verse 16, of those who inhabit the city the the holiness in the character verse 17 no stranger no unbeliever will be there the presence of the 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 river of life in verse 18 the water of life the theme of eternal life in verses 18 to 21 and the fact that 
Zion or the new Jerusalem is the habitation of Yahweh Himself. In verse 21, the Lord dwells in Zion. Now, I want you to turn over to Revelation. The book of Revelation chapter 21. And we'll close with this. This is, the, this is the end of the story. This is the good news. Eden is restored. Paradise regained. The, the promised land. The creation is transformed into a new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The garden is transformed into this new Jerusalem. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Down in verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. Showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So you have this picture of this new Jerusalem. And in fact, chapter 22, one more section, verse 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer... Will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. You, this is the language of Joel, isn't it? The same picture. Verse 4, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is remarkable. This is... Everything we're, we're hoping for, and in verse 1, it's not just the Father, not just Jesus, but even, I think, a reference to the Holy Spirit. This river of the water of life flowing from the throne is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Do you remember on the last day of the great feast, Jesus gets up and He says, anybody believing in Me out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John comments, this is a reference to the Spirit that the Spirit had not yet been poured out because Jesus had not yet ascended. And this water of life that is bringing life to the eternal state, the new heavens and new earth, it's, it's coming from the throne. And I think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced of it. And so you have all three persons of the Godhead ruling on the throne forever dwelling among their people, forever giving us life. In fact, in John 6.63, the Holy Spirit is called the One who gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The One who brought life to the first creation, the Holy Spirit, He's bringing life to the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. And so we will be Spirit-empowered for all eternity. And so this promise in Joel that the Spirit would be poured out, it's not a temporary thing. It's for all eternity. The Spirit is going to be empowering our eternal worship of God. In fact, i got to turn to Revelation 7. Just look at this here in Revelation 7. 
verse 15. Therefore, they, have, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful picture. This is what we long for. This world is not our home. We know it. it it's a, as C.S. Lewis said, it's a shadow lands. It's a shadow of the world to come. In fact, he has a beautiful picture in his book, The Last Battle, the Narnia series, where as the kids go through that, that gate into heaven, as it were, the way he describes it, he says, all the greens are greener. All the blues are bluer. There's no way to describe it other than it's more real. It's more solidly real than this world. This is our hope. And like the people of Israel who had been distracted by the things of the world around them, the idols and the pleasures and the, the just the wine and the food and the day-to-day living and they, they just had forgotten God, it's so easy for us to do the same. To just go about our life forgetting God. Being distracted by the abundance we have as Americans. Being distracted by the idols that we have in our life. And God says, return to me, rend your hearts so that you would live. And yes, a day of judgment is coming because He's holy and righteous. But in the context of Joel, you see it's His judgment comes to ultimately defend His people so that He will establish righteousness on the earth. And that when you turn to Him, as He says in Joel, you find Him to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and the one who relents concerning disaster. What a promise. What a hope. This is the character of our God. Revelation describes it as we're going to be with Him forever and He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And sin will be no more and darkness will be no more and righteousness will dwell and God's going to be with us and we're His children and He's our Father. And we're going to serve Him and worship Him day and night forever. Hallelujah. Father, thank You for this Word and our time in Your Word. It can be hard to hear. It can be hard to hear about judgment. It can be so easy to think that judgment's not coming. To ignore the alarms. To tune ourselves out from the alarms and say, oh, judgment's not coming. To think because you haven't brought judgment that you won't, and yet we know it's coming. And yet in your graciousness and your compassion, you've offered You've offered hope and salvation and say, return to me and turn to the Lord. And Father, thank You. Thank You that You've given us this hope in, in Jesus. We know that in Joel, the Messiah was yet to come, but we know here on this side of the cross that Your Son is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He was the promised One and He poured out the Spirit. He asked You to send the Spirit 
and you've given us Jesus and you've poured out your Spirit and we have these things. That's why we take communion. It's why we celebrate and remember. This cup is the new covenant in your blood. The blood of your Son, rather. Jesus, Father. And so as we turn to the table now, may it bring us great hope and comfort that you fight for us. You are going to restore all wrongs. You are going to... Not only, you've not only redeemed your people in Jesus, but you're going to vindicate us. You're going to exalt us and raise us up and cause us to dwell securely with you forever in the new heavens and new earth. And our enemies will be put to shame. May it cause us to pursue you and follow you and worship you all of our days. In Jesus' name. Amen.